Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. All right, it's been a little bit since we've spoken about the story. We've been chatting about the culture and the people. We've been speaking about digs and hordes. We've discussed booze and horse dung. But we haven't spoken too much about the politics of the time. So let's take a second to catch you up, and then let's dive into the story. So as you might recall from months and months ago, the Romans withdrew from Britannia in order to focus on internal and external conflicts. And besides, Britannia really wasn't any fun. It was cold and rainy, and it really wasn't the most stable of places. Really, all Britannia had going for it were, well, you know. So Rome might have been perfectly happy to abandon the province. They kept declaring emperors and rebelling, after all. And so once again, Britannia was all alone. And just like with any breakup, I'm sure there was a mix of emotions, at least for the elites. The average Briton was probably as concerned with who was in power as your common person today is with who heads up the IMF or WTO. Could it have an impact on your life? Sure. But it's so far away that many people don't even pay attention. And that's probably what was going on in Britannia. Hell, most people probably still considered themselves Romans. And they were almost certainly more focused on the harvest, bandit raids, and all manner of other issues that were more pressing than the shifts of allegiance within the political elite. So Britannia was no longer Roman. And things went okay for a little bit. And then there were difficulties with barbarians. And the Romano-British said, You've got to help us out here, Aetius. And Aetius said, Are you kidding me? I'm neck deep in barbarians over here. And you want me to come back over there and help defend your sheep? Get lost. And so the Romano-Britons had to look to themselves for defense. Which, on the one hand, was reasonable since they were no longer part of the empire. But on the other hand, was a bit cheeky since the Romans had spent generations demilitarizing them and also looting the island of potential soldiers for all of their wars. So this was going to be a strictly home guard affair. And actually, it seems like they did an okay job. For a while. But eventually they needed some backup and were told that they hired some mercenaries. Hengist and Horsa. Which translates to stallion and horse. I'll let you speculate on your own as to how those guys got those nicknames. So the Horsey brothers arrived. I've told you the story of what happened following that. You know, how things go sideways thanks to financing and payment issues, and you end up with the British insurgency against the Saxons, led, at least for a time, by Ambrosius Aurelianus. And we've already talked about how this whole Hengist and Horsa thing sounds a little bit like a myth. Even the names are suspect, not to mention boastful and probably destined to set up unrealistic expectations. However, what we haven't spoken about is that this isn't the only time in history that has mentioned Hengist. In the story I told you, he seemed rather like a one-dimensional mythic character who arrives via boat and later goes on a rampage because the English were being, well, cheap. But that doesn't tell you too much about who this person, if he existed, was. So in the grand Hollywood tradition of creating prequels, let me tell you a story of Hengist that originates in his alleged homeland. And I think it will tell you a little bit more about him, and also of the values of the people who would soon come to dominate England. And as a bonus, this story was popular enough to even be referenced in Beowulf. This was a well-liked story. 
So shortly before Hengist's invasion of Britain, we're told of a rather dramatic series of events in Frisia. Finn, the king of the Frisians, and his wife Hildebur were having a grand feast. As you might remember, feasts were a big deal for the Germanic people and could last for days, at least the good ones. Well, Hildebur was a Danish princess before she was a Frisian queen, and so of course she wanted to invite her Danish brother, Hnef, to the feast. And as traveling, as well as feasting, could be a bit dangerous, Hnef brought with him his own retinue. There were 60 guards in total who accompanied Hnef to the dinner. Which meant that, much to the dismay of the Frisians, there were now over 60 dirty Danes coming to the feast. You can almost imagine Finn saying, Thanks for that, Hildebur. This was supposed to be a small and intimate feast for me and the men, and now it's this big event. So not only will we be unable to relax, but it's also going to be insanely expensive. Awesome. But like we spoke about in the feasting episodes, you have to bring your A-game if you're going to hold a feast. Even if the people bring retinues. That's just part of the deal. So Hnef and his men arrived and feasted with the Frisian king. Well, you probably remember how much booze flowed at these events. And with the combination of booze, general dislike, and the rich history of fights and blood feuds between the peoples of that era, it shouldn't surprise you that eventually a fight broke out. It seems that the first to lose their temper were the guardsmen of King Finn. Whether this was under his command isn't known, but I'm guessing that he at least provided silent consent. And so, in the dead of night, Finn's guards set out to attack Neff's guard, who they referred to as half-Danes. Really? Half-Danes? Yeah, these guys are jerks. Well, Neff and his men were wily. Or maybe they just weren't as stupid as Finn's men, because they heard the familiar clink of armor coming down the hall. Yeah, Finn's men decided to wear noisy armor to a nighttime assassination. Had these guys never watched a ninja movie? Light clothing only, preferably in black. Get it together, Finn. Anyway, thanks to Finn's half-assed ninja attack, Neff and his men had enough time to barricade themselves into the hall and hold off the initial assault. But this was no minor fight, and it wasn't going to end as quickly as Finn's men probably had hoped. So now Neff held the hall, and King Finn's men were having a devil of a time trying to get in. I'm no military man, but if video games have taught me one thing, it's that choke points, such as doorways, can be rapidly turned into kill zones. So things got ugly and drawn out. And in the end, the fight lasted for five days. And during that period, men were dying all around them, including Finn's son. And even Hnef himself died. The death of Hnef must have been a hell of a blow. But it wasn't the end of the world. This was a warband, and there was a chain of command, not to mention that your obligations didn't end just because your leader died. You might recall the story of Chinnawolf and Chinnaherd, and how the warriors fought to the death even though their lord had been slain. Well, we're dealing with a similar culture here. So Hnef falling didn't bring the conflict to a close, and now command fell to his second, a man by the name of Hengist. But here's the thing. Hengist was no fool. He realized that most of his men were battered, bloodied, or outright slain. This wouldn't end well for them. But he also knew that King Finn was in no better position, which put them in a position to try and sort out some sort of arrangement. 
and so he brokered a truce with the Frisian king. One of the particulars of this truce was that Hengist's men were to be given equal standing with the other guests at the feast, and that the survivors of the battle would be honored and given accommodation alongside the Jutes. Remember in the feast episode when we talked about how serious seating, status, and behavior was at these events? Well, here's another example. Men had died all around them, including Neff himself, and yet during negotiations, they were not ready to back down on the issue of where they stayed. But there was something else going on here as well. This wasn't just a matter of where they sat and how they were treated. King Finn was not a weak negotiator, and he was doing more than simply dealing with propriety. He was bringing them into his service. They would fight for him now. And to add muscle to his demands, he made sure that they knew that if anyone complained about the truce, they had better be ready for another battle. Now, switching sides was simply not done. You were expected to serve your warlord until death. We have quite a few stories that reflect that value. But here you have Hengist agreeing to stand down his men and join Finn in exchange for suitable accommodation and honor. It makes the whole situation rather unusual, if you ask me. And you have to consider what followed. This probably wasn't just a few words and a nod of a head. This was probably reinforced with concrete ritual actions. And remember how important rituals were to these people. I mean, it might have even included something like the breaking of Neff's rings that were placed on their swords, and the fastening of King Finn's rings. If that's the case, now even their weapons had a physical indication that they served the man who had their lord killed. Another interesting part of this is that the negotiations for the truce had taken place while the bodies were still lying around. There was no funeral pyre until after the truce had been finalized. What an incredible stench there must have been. But it's quite a brutal way to motivate a quick resolution, isn't it? King Finn almost certainly realized that he was asking Hengist and his men to abandon propriety and centuries of cultural training that demanded that they die in service of their lord. So he had to make his strongest case possible. And the bodies and the blood and the filth that covered the battle-scarred hall must have been quite persuasive. And so Hengist and his men agreed and joined Finn's service. After which, there was a funeral. And during that funeral, Hildeberg ordered that her son be burned in Hnef's funeral pyre. Think about that. First, you have King Finn's wife giving orders, not Finn. And then you have their son being burned with a half-Dane, who was the leader of the warriors who had slain the boy. Sure, this is an old story, and it's hard to know what's real and what is legend. But the fact it was a story told enough to reach us in our modern day tells us a little bit about the character and values of the people who would soon be migrating to Britain, doesn't it? Anyway, so now Hengist was serving the man who killed his lord. It might have made sense at the time. After all, they were in an untenable situation, blockaded in the hall with injured and dead men all around them. Not to mention that they were probably being starved out. Sure, as a feasting hall, but five days and 60 men, they could eat a lot. But I'm sure the truce graded on at least a few of them. And so, all through the winter, they probably quietly seethed. There, at Finn's court, Hengist must have tried to go through the motions and hide his rage and shame. Or maybe he was just fine with it. 
and he was all too happy to serve the Frisian king. We just don't know. But what we do know is that not all of his men were pleased with this truce. Their honor had been taken from them, and it would need to be restored. Something would have to be done. So after winter had passed, one of Hengist's warriors came to him and laid a sword across his knees. He knew what this meant. King Finn would have to die. And Hengist may well have realized that if he did not kill Finn, that his own men would turn on him for cowardice and lack of honor. So even if Hengist had earnestly agreed to the truce and intended to serve Finn, he really had no choice here. And so Hengist gathered his men and took Finn by surprise, much like the Frisians had done at the feast. Except this time, they were not heard. No warning was given. And the Danes butchered the king and all of his men. Then they ransacked his hall and grabbed Queen Hildeburg and headed back to their own lands. Whether Hildeburg wanted this isn't known, but it is recorded as a triumphant event, that she was returned to her people, their people, the Danes. So that's the story, with Hengist triumphantly regaining his honor and his people being all the better for it. But it wouldn't last. With the pressure from barbarian migrations thanks to the Huns, Visigoths, Vandals, Ostrogoths, Franks, and others, continental Europe was in chaos. The Western Empire, what was left of it, couldn't handle it and wouldn't be around for much longer. There was a massive shuffling of Europe, the likes of which is hard to even comprehend. The Germans referred to it as the Volkerwanderung, the wandering of the peoples. And I think that's partially correct, but I also think it softballs it. This isn't simply wandering. There's a good bit of panicked flight in there as well. One group runs into another group, who runs into another group, and so on and so forth. It's like cascading dominoes to a certain extent. And then you add to it evidence that climate change was occurring at around the same time, and you have a recipe for people who want to migrate. But Hengist had his own reasons to want to change. He had switched sides following the death of his lord, and then he killed the king he swore an oath to. Sure, the poem presents it in terms of regaining his honor, and it's very much an underdog victory sort of tale. But is this the sort of man you'd want to keep near you? Armed to the teeth, and probably possessing a rather shifty look in his eye? I mean, most warbands consisted of psychopathic peacocks, we know that. But there are limits, and maybe this one should be left out of the zoo. So for Hengist, job offers might have been few and far between. But that's okay. A good living could be made through piracy and mercenary work. And so the same year that Rome tried to fight Attila the Hun, Hengist headed to Britain to make his fortune. And that wasn't a bad idea, really. The Huns had probably gotten at least as far as Cologne in their pursuit of Aetius. The story goes that St. Ursula and her companions, who apparently were originally from Britannia, were martyred at Cologne by the Huns when Attila captured it. So if the Huns were in the neighborhood, would you really want to stick around? Getting off the continent and away from the Huns might have been a pretty good plan. And so pretty soon we get to the story that you're all familiar with. Hengist and his men were hired by a high king of the Britons, who was referred to as Vortigern, to take care of the Irish and Pictish raids. They proceeded to kick metric tons of butt, and as things on the continent weren't entirely pleasant, their numbers apparently swelled rapidly. And after a while, the mercenaries turned their attention to their boss, allegedly overpayment or lack thereof. But honestly, it might have just been some opportunistic raiding. 
Either way it goes, the Romano-British made a rather classic blunder. They thought they were in control. And here's roughly how that played out. I've paid you a small fortune. This gives you power over me? Spoiler alert here, it doesn't. And this is why Bane, and mercenaries in general, have a pretty bad reputation. So Vortigern was probably kicking himself for hiring Hengist, but the damage was already done. Anyway, so there you have it. If Hengist really did exist, and it was the same Hengist who fought Finn, then we might have an idea of why he came to Britannia. And it explains why the Kentish kings trace their royal lineage to Oisk rather than Hengist. The guy switched sides and killed a king. No matter which way you slice it, it's kind of hard to brag about him at political feasts. Now at around the same time, it's possible that Kenetha of the Vododini was also brought south to help deal with the raids in Wales. And the rulers of Gwynedd traced their lineage to Kenetha, so it's entirely possible that this really happened. And we have no reason to think that the Romano-British only hired one group to defend them. And they certainly could have used some help, since these weren't the warrior people that Rome had conquered in the first century CE. They were disarmed and Romanized. So the image of Britain at this time is one where Romanization has come to bite them in the butt, and they're forced to rely on mercenaries. And sometimes those mercenaries took advantage of the chaos to further enrich themselves. Good times. Now during all these battles, eventually Horsa falls, and the last we hear of Hengist is in 473, where the old stallion fights one last battle against the Welsh. A decade later, Oisk succeeds him. So maybe he continued to live, but just didn't fight anymore. Who knows? But it wasn't all Hengist and his men. There were others who came to the island, which again suggests that maybe there were other kings who hired mercenaries. Or maybe those bands just heard of how ripe Britannia was for plunder and decided to get theirs while the getting was good. But regardless, we end up hearing of others. For example, sometime around Hengist's reign, we think, I mean, dating is rather spotty, another leader of a warband, a man by the name of Alla, was fighting to establish his own kingdom of the South Saxons, what would later become known as Sussex. Now, Alla is something of a shadowy figure in his own right. All these characters are, really, if we're being honest. Things are far from clear, but the Chronicle tells us that he arrived in 477 with his three sons, and three ships of warriors, at Caiman's Shore, where he fought a bunch of Britons and drove them into the wood. So apparently the shore defenses couldn't even stop three ships worth of warriors. Again, this tells us of the relative weakness and lack of unity that plagued Britain at this point in history. Alla fought another battle against the Britons in 485, and was successful in that one as well. And then in 491, he and his son, Sisa, killed everyone at Andrade's Cester, which was a fort along the South Saxon shore. And then we don't hear any more of him. He disappears, much like Hengist did. We aren't given a lot of information here, but the length of time in between the battles, we're talking about 14 years, and the fact that there were still forts that Allah had to take tells us that this wasn't an easy conquest, and that the Britons were putting up quite a fight. And Gildas tells us of something that was going on at around this time. And keep in mind that the Chronicle, which is where we hear of Allah, was written long after these events, so the dates are, uh, a bit dodgy, as is Gildas. But Allah disappears from the record roughly around the time that we're told of the Battle of Mons Badonicus, the Battle of Baden Hill. Maybe Allah died in that battle. And it seems that in the years following that battle, Allah's son, Sisa, had taken up the reins of leading the South Saxons. So it is a possibility, I suppose. But regardless, 
If we're to believe Gildas, there was a period of peace following that battle, and the Germanic bands were forced back, though how far back and to where isn't entirely certain. But that doesn't last forever, and throughout this period we're going to hear of new Germanic warriors, men with famous names who would become founding members of dynasties. Men like Cherditch. But this doesn't really tell the whole story, does it? Unfortunately, our sources are rather limited for this period, but we can be pretty sure that for a period at the beginning of this migration, there was some sort of high king who organized the defense. The man we sometimes call Vortigern was probably this person. And when we look at these tales and how small bands were able to cause immense amounts of havoc, we should remember that there probably wasn't a single nation at this point. And it's very doubtful that the Britons would have seen themselves in that way, even if there was. There were probably a number of Romano-British kingdoms, all with their own agendas, who were trying to work with or against various neighbors, mercenaries, and barbarian tribes. Remember that nobody alive at this time would have even recalled a time when Britannia was a single Roman province. It had been carved up into four provinces for ages. And it's hard to imagine that the Romano-Brits, now that Rome had withdrew, suddenly started working together as a unit. So Vortigern was probably a king of kings, much like how the Irish organized, with a number of kingdoms serving beneath him, all probably vying for control themselves. And this disunity and potential rivalry could explain why Hengist and Allah and others were able to cause so much chaos. History is replete with examples of self-centered tribes who refuse to band together against an external force. And as a consequence, they often get conquered by a group that they could have easily destroyed themselves had they started working together. My guess is that was what was going on here. And we're going to see as we go forward that tribalism isn't dead in England. It'll be quite a while before anyone sees themselves as part of a single nation. Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com. You can also join us at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And you can also follow us on Twitter. All you have to do is search for at British Podcast and click follow, and you'll get daily updates. And, of course, there are the forums. There are plenty of fun conversations going on over there. So if you'd like to join those, just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click get involved, and click forums, and we'll see you over there. All right. Thanks for listening.